Our scripture today comes from Proverbs 24, verses 30 through 34. I went by the field of the lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. This is God's word. So I'm going to begin today how I never begin. I'm going to tell you the title of my message. And the reason why is I want it to sink into your soul. And I want you to feel the raw emotion of it. So I'm going to give you the title. You all ready? Loving Mondays. What's that feel like? I hear some snickers. I hear some laughter. Loving Mondays. What's it feel like? Is it actual? Is it aspirational? Is it improbable? What's going on in your mind? What's going on in your spirit? Uh, the reason I start with this is we began a series in Proverbs last week. We're going to be in Proverbs for seven weeks. Uh, Proverbs is a fantastic book of the Bible that deals with many, what I would call, big items of life. It's more practical than it is theological or covenantal. It's how life generally will work. You can't take a proverb and put it on your wall and say, now God, you've got to make this happen. It's generally the way life can or should work. But when I say loving Mondays, I'm pretty sure there's groups of people, right? Some people are like, Pastor Bob, you got to be kidding. We all know Monday's the worst day of the week. Or, you know, I get that pit in my stomach about 6.30, dreading the next day and the four days that follow. Because I get up, and I shower, and I commute, and I work, and then I go from the problems at work to the problems at home, and then I do it all over again. That's one group of people. Now, if you're in that group, there's some reasons why, right? You might be the wrong fit for your job, even though you're thankful for a paycheck. Uh, you might have a uh, boss that is challenging. I'll use nice words today. Uh, maybe some of the people that you work with or uh, just a difficult culture that doesn't match your skill set. There is another group that loves Mondays. They're probably looking around like, well, I love Mondays. Am I an outlier? I feel like what I do, I fit in my own skin. It's what I was called to do. Uh, even though we live in a fallen world, I can find meaning and I serve people. I love the people I work with. We have a wonderful culture. And uh, I really enjoy going to work each and every day. There's a third category of people that we never think of. They're like, yeah, I love Mondays. I like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'm retired. I golf, I fish. Yeah, I love every day. Uh, I'll have a little something for you guys too. The book of Proverbs was written by King Solomon. We looked last week, 1 Kings chapter 4. He was the wisest man to ever live. And he wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote 3,000 pro Proverbs. About half of them are here in the book of Proverbs. And in chapter 1, verse 2, he said he wrote Proverbs that we would know wisdom and instruction, uh, that we would receive words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. In other words, God didn't want his people learning through the school of hard knocks. He wanted them to learn in advance, and that's what we call wisdom. The Hebrew wisdom 
The actual word is the same word used for a craftsman. The skill of cutting wood or hammering or whatever you do, wisdom is the same idea. There is a skill to living life. You look at Christ followers who are very successful and you go behind the scenes and you will see there are habits in their life that make them who they are. The key, however, in the book, and we spent a lot of time on this last week, was chapter one, verse seven, where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord isn't wisdom, it's how wisdom brings or where it springs from. The foundation of your life has to be the word of God. The psalmist said, unless the Lord builds the house, you're building in vain. You can build a fancy house and it'll look well, but when storms come, that house will fall. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is a reverence and awe, a humility before a God of the universe. We just sang the Alpha and the Omega, who dialed up the universe and fine-tuned it. Everything in nature works the way it was designed to work and it glorifies God and benefits us. That same God knows how life works. And he wants you to be blessed and walk in the fruit of it. And so the same laws that work in the universe govern our lives. To fear the Lord is simply to obey him. That's all it really is. It's to obey him when things don't look the way they should or don't make sense to your mind. Uh, Proverbs says there's a way that seems right unto a man and that way is death. There's a way the world will tell us to go and that way is death. There was a man Jesus told us about in Luke um, who had built a business, he was very wise, and his barns were filled. And within himself, he said, what am I going to do? I've been very successful. He says, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. Jesus said that wasn't wisdom. That man was actually a fool. He never put God into the equation. And his soul was required of him that day. You need to mark down Proverbs 3, 5. You've heard it all your life. Lean not on your understanding, be not wise in your own eyes, but in all your ways, not some of your ways, but in all of your ways, acknowledge God. In other words, put him into the equation and what he said, and he will make your path straight. One day you'll look in the rearview mirror of life and say, wow, God, you have been amazing, and you have been awesome in your power. Proverbs has this big theme of human achievement, or what we would call work, career, or devotion. Uh, there are many scriptures outside of 24. I chose 24 because Solomon is the author of Proverbs, the wisest man that ever lived. And yet Solomon had time, and I'm sure being a king is very busy. We just saw a royal wedding yesterday, some of us. And uh, those people have a lot to do, believe it or not. And Solomon's a busy guy, and yet he's walking around one day. And man, I get my greatest thoughts walking around. Uh, you know what wisdom did for Solomon? I hope it'll do for you. It made Solomon a first-class noticer. You know what that means? It means that probably everybody in this room could walk by an overgrown field, and you know what they would see? An overgrown field, if you saw it at all. Solomon, who's already wise, considered it well. Uh, literally, he said the field preached to him. And he comes up with the proverb you've heard all of your life. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, surely your poverty will come on you like an armed man and like a robber. Hearing the voice of God is so important. Hebrews 1 says we serve a God who speaks. I think a tragedy is to open your Bible, and by the way, that's the predominant way God speaks, but to open your Bible and do your devotion and read Luke 1 and never hear the voice of God or see him at work during the day, 
I, I can't see how anybody can live that way. Moses at the burning bush, we could give you so many other examples. Solomon didn't see an overgrown field. You know what he saw? He saw a functioning vineyard, a prosperous garden, a hospital, a house of worship. He saw a place that would bring joy to the owner and would bless others. Jerusalem's a very rocky, barren, hilly area, and a field that could produce was worth tremendous. And Solomon said, there's been negligence here. There's been a misuse of gifts and wasted resources because this field is barren and overgrown. He implies something that the text doesn't say, that somewhere, someone, and I know this has got to be true, was complaining God didn't come through for them. I think the owner of the field was sitting somewhere saying, God's not faithful, God doesn't love me, life stinks, and all the excuses you and I have ever heard. I attended Jimmy Lynham's basketball camp when I was a kid. He was the coach of St. Joe's University, does Sixers post game now. And I remember him sitting us down as campers, and he said, now one day you're all gonna wanna make the team, high school, college. And he said, what's gonna happen to most of you is you're never gonna make that team. You'll be 30 years old, you'll be sitting on a bar stool someday, and someone will ask you why you never made those teams, and you'll blame coaches and players and everybody but yourself. You know what Jimmy Lynham was telling 10 to 16-year-olds that day? That you can make the team if you work hard. If you're diligent, if you put this above everything else, if you have the passion, one day you can be a success at what you do. As we go through this message today, I want to remind you, you are God's field. You're his vineyard. You're his workers in his vineyard. Israel was his vineyard one day, they failed. We are now his workers. And so let me ask you the question at the front, and I'll ask you at the back. What is the condition of your field? Is it thriving? Is it fruitful? Is it prosperous? Or are there weeds, and is your wall broken down? I think I have a pretty good perspective to teach this today. I'm 55 years old. Both my parents were entrepreneurs and small business people. My mom was a waitress when I graduated college. She, she uh, began a restaurant. My stepfather was a landscaper. So I know a little bit about Main Street. I know a little bit about self-employment. We had no entitlement, no insurance. Uh, they had to work for everything they had. My first job was at a Fortune 500 company. I know what it's like to work in a bigger company and have all the benefits. And then I started a church, which is a nonprofit organization. So I think I've seen a lot, read a lot, and of course, Proverbs has a lot to say. We'll put that all together, and we'll see where we come. Everybody ready to get started? You thought we were halfway done, didn't you? Yeah. Okay. One of the things that saddens me is the Bible has a lot to say about money. However, every time we want to talk about it, we feel weird because people always have talked about money in church, mainly how much you should give, right? Every time there's a building campaign, etc. cetera. Uh, the Bible actually has more to say about earning money than giving money, which is logical, right? You can't give what you don't have. So Proverbs has a lot to say about earning money. And let me say this. The reason why immigrants came to the U.S. is because this was the land of what? Opportunity. Uh, my dad was a landscaper. When I was young, all his workers were immigrant Italians. They didn't even speak English. You know what they're doing today? They own big nurseries. Uh, they own tree farms. They're putting in swimming pools. They, they couldn't believe they could work one or two jobs, and they've been quite successful. 
Proverbs 13, 11 says, dishonest money will dwindle away, but he who gathers money, listen, little by little will make it grow. And by the way, somewhere in there is the law of compound interest, little by little by little. Uh, my dad taught me, he said, look, you guys are struggling, you got small kids, he said, but paychecks will keep lining up and one day you'll look and you'll have enough. And it's true, little by little by little. There was a billionaire one time who was having lunch with a gentleman and this gentleman knew he had a short amount of time and he wanted to pick this brain of a billionaire and he thought the supreme question would be, sir, tell me the one book you recommend on gaining wealth. You know what the billionaire's answer was? The tortoise and the hare. That's the book you should read. Uh, Proverbs 12.11 says, those who work their land will have an abundance of food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. Now, we talked about dishonest gain, that's insurance fraud and you know, illegal lawsuits, those type of things. But what about chasing fantasies, right? We all get caught up in that, right? How many of you have ever been invited to a pyramid scheme you didn't know it was a pyramid scheme? And they're promising you're going to have your own helicopter one day and you're going to own all this land and oh my gosh, you're not going to believe how easy it is, right? We've all heard that. Uh, what about the lottery? Uh, now we have gambling. Supreme Court passed a rule that sports gambling, uh, all 50 states, and that's going to open up a Pandora's box. Uh, there are actually books out there that will tell you how to get rich. And uh, I know somebody in the publishing industry, they actually call those, and sorry to let you down, diet books, they call them snake oil books. Those books make them a ton of money and have very little value, but people just keep buying them over and over again. Now, the Bible doesn't say you can't be entrepreneurial. I'm gonna put a book on the screen that I'm reading right now, it's called When to Jump, if the job you have isn't the life you want. That's one of your options if you don't feel like you're a fit right now. You live in America, you can make the jump to another career. Here's why I read secular books. Number one, if they can do it without God, how much more can we do? Right? How much more can we do if we have God? Number two, you know what this book is telling you? Uh, this gentleman made the jump from Bain Capital to playing professional squash. Now, ladies, if your husband wants to be a professional golfer and go on the tour, don't let him. Don't let him make that jump. Here's the idea. This man will tell you in the book, everybody, while they were at one job, was getting the skills necessary for the next job. Uh, there's this idea, you do anything for 10,000 hours, you'll get really good at it. Most of the people who made a jump worked really hard to get to the next place. There's a process to it all. Uh, here's so many people saying, yeah, I'm just gonna go out on a limb, quit my job, do this. No, that's not the way it works. I'll talk more about this when we get to the sweet spot. Thomas Edison said that opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls. Hard work is the key. I was at my niece's graduation yesterday in Rhode Island, Roger Williams University. Roger, Will Roger Williams was a clergyman in New England, very devout, who started a college to reach Native Americans, which called Indians at that time. Uh, fast forward the clock to 2018, you know how this goes. They start the graduation appealing to the great spirit, right? It's no longer God. Probably all these people making several hundred thousand years sat around for eight hours and said, oh, I know what we'll do. We won't offend anyone. We'll call it the great spirit, right? 
But God has a way of sneaking into graduations. You ever know that? Uh, my, one of my uh, nephews had an atheistic wedding. You know God got into that wedding? Uh, here's what happened. They had four violinists up front, but the bride was late. And when they ran out of secular music, all the violinists looked at each other, they didn't know what to do. You know what they started playing? Be thou my vision. God snuck in. So guess how he snuck into the graduation? The commencement speaker, indigenous Dominican Republic native, started with a small four-room hotel and, listen, built the entire Punta Cana resort that you and I know of today that did not exist in the 1970s. Built the airport, built all the hotels. He's a billionaire. He had two things to say. You young college graduates, you have technology, you have everything at your fingertips, but always remember this, nothing replaces hard work and vision. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, I don't think they need to hear it, I need to hear it in every adult in this room, it's true. And then he said, I give all my credit to almighty God in heaven, and I thought, yes. <laughs> God gets in there all the time. Samuel Goldman said, I can't believe it, the harder I work, the luckier I get, right? Hard work is the key. But work is biblical. There's actually a theology of work in the Bible, and it appears very early. Uh, the Ten Commandments. Now, th this is mind-boggling, right? Uh, we know they're from God because one of the commandments is this. Go out and play. That's my paraphrase. The Sabbath day, right? God said, rest. Just do whatever you want. Take one whole day. Do whatever you want. Uh, what we forget is the front part of that verse says, Six days you shall work. And we don't think that's a command. We think the resting is the command. No, God said, six days you will work. It's really good for you, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm a worker, God said. In six days I created heavens and earth, and on the seventh God rested. When God created the heavens and the earth, it's very methodical, right? Day one, day two, we get all the details. Uh, some people will say it's a poem, it is, it, it's a creation myth. No, it's not. God as a worker was being very methodical with his creation. But notice this, you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, God left things undone. He didn't name the animals, gardens still had to be tended. There was a lot of work for Adam and Eve to do. They were to be fruitful and multiply. Now the animals would do that also, but, it, but as the height of God's creation and the image of God, have dominion, have dominion over everything. That's what God gave us, the creative ability to take the raw ingredients. This is where we get the word horticulture, to take the raw ingredients. Uh, you go to Longwood Gardens, you see the beauty of the flowers and all. They've taken the raw ingredients and they've designed it. That's where we get culture. God said, look, here's seven notes on a musical scale. Now make beautiful music. And here's words and make beautiful books. God has called you and me to make beautiful things out of what he's given us because we're made in his image. So the theology and the framework of work in the Bible is beautiful. And Martin Luther and Calvin said, whether you wash dishes or do what I'm doing right now, preach the gospel, if you're doing it with all your heart and if that's your calling, you get the same adulation from God because like everything in creation, you're giving glory to God. What you need to understand is that when this was written, this didn't exist in any other culture. The Greeks who would come 500 years later, who we laud as this amazing civilization, Aristotle said it was the goal of life not to work. 
Because work was menial, it was below the gods. The gods didn't work, and neither should we. So to rise up through the ranks and not work was the epitome for the Greeks. But guess what God does? He sends his son to the world, and guess what he does? He's a carpenter. And God's a worker. And there's a framework and a theology for work that's wonderful and it's beautiful and it sustained the Jewish people. Everywhere they would go, they would rise to the top. And even when they were putting ghettos, they put newspapers out and had functioning societies. Not only does work provide for us, not only does it give honor to God, it's an outlet for creativity. It gives us a routine, if we're honest, that we need. Uh, even people in retirement need routines. Satisfaction of a job well done. You actually get tired. You can go to sleep. Um, you're a person under authority. We all have a boss. You get to work with others and make the world a better place. If you want to read a comprehensive book on work, Tim Keller's Every Good Endeavor is a good place to start. Now, I can't leave this topic without giving a warning about the work-rest balance or the life balance God put into Scripture. Six days you shall work. God said seven day, the seventh day you need to, to rest, recreate. This is where we get the word recreation. A proverb is very clear on this. Uh, it tells us, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Proverbs 23, 4. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches. One day they'll be gone. They'll sprout wings and fly into the sky like an eagle. That's called taxes. <laughs> Proverbs 11.4, wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Proverbs 11.28, whoever trusts in riches will fall. Proverbs 22.1, a good name is more desirable than great silver, and it's to be esteemed better than gold. Workaholism is a smokescreen for insecurity, fear, fear of not having enough and God's not going to provide, Busyness, some people have it as a badge of honor. I'm busy, I'm busy. People come to me and say, Pastor Bob, you must be busy. I'm not any busier than anybody else. I have a work-life balance, and so should you. So in no way are we saying you should work yourself to death. What we're saying is work is good. That's the framework of work, theology of work. The second thing is, what are the characteristics of a wise worker, which all of us should be? You know Chick-fil-A likes to hire our teenagers here? Because they never have problems with them. Uh, that can't be said in every category. And I'll get to that in a few minutes. Tim Keller said, our work can be a calling if it is reimagined as a mission of service to something beyond merely our own interests. Thinking of work mainly as a means to my self-fulfillment and self-realization will crush a person in the end. Somewhere you have to see work is designed by God to make the world a better place, to, to add value within a community. It's not all about us. Uh, but that's where we're going in America, right? Our identity is who we are now. It's no longer the community. It's no longer the traditional family. It's all about me. And so you gotta stay away from a lot of things like that. And you gotta ask God, God, where do I add value? Where can I see the fruit of my labor? I think the game changer is not even in Proverbs, it's in the New Testament, where Paul writes in Colossians 3, he said, bond servants, now that would be employees today, obey in all things your master, that would be your boss, not with eye service as men pleasers, 
uh, not with insincerity, but fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily with all your heart as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve Christ. Uh, let's say you're in a wrong culture. You have a bad boss. Uh, you just don't feel right where you are. We've all been there. I've been there. The game changer is to know that you work for God. You work for Jesus. Now, I'm not saying this like some trite Sunday school. Yeah, you work for Jesus. What I'm saying is your attitude in your work, first of all, needs to be thankfulness, drawing a paycheck, thankfulness that you do have an opportunity. But when you start to see Jesus as your boss, I think everything changes. Let me give you an example. One of the qualities of a wise worker is to show up on time. And I don't mean running in the door with a cup of coffee and your tie hanging down one minute ahead. Um, it's very difficult at Solomon Brothers and at Wall Street banks to get an internship in your junior year. Well, there was a kid from Stanford uh, in his junior year got an internship at Goldman Sachs. At 7 a.m. at Goldman Sachs, there's a stand-up meeting where you are orally grilled in finance by top managers. You know what they do at seven o'clock? Lock the door. You know what happens if you're not there? You lost your internship. Uh, one tremendous leader that I respect has an axiom, arrive early or not at all. Proverbs says as a door turns on in his, as a door turns on its hinges, so a lazy man on his bed. In other words, the unwise can't get up in the morning. Uh, the unwise have a lot of excuses. Proverbs uh, 26, 14. The sluggard says there's a lion in the road. I guess in that culture, right? For us, it would be the dog ate my homework. A fierce lion's roaming in the street. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. That's Proverbs 26. That's the know-it-all, by the way, right? The person who knows everything the way it should be. And Proverbs says that's not a wise attribute. Uh, Proverbs 12, 27 talks about the quitter, a slothful man. He doesn't roast his prey. But then Solomon, when he grasps for qualities of a wise worker, he doesn't even use scripture. In Proverbs 6, you all know it, he said, you slugger, let's go to the ant. Remember he was wise in creeping things, zoology. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Now, when we observe the ant, here's some of the qualities. Self-motivated, hardworking, plans ahead, delayed gratification. Now, for years, I couldn't put my finger on what I deemed the top quality. And then Angela Duckworth from University of Penn wrote a book, and it nailed it. It's called Grit. And uh, I want to show you what she came up with. Uh, it's simple, and that's what makes it profound. A Angela Duckworth said, for everything we do, we need talent. Right? Uh, fill teeth, write poems, dig ditches, whatever you do, you got to have talent, right? And she says, when you take talent and you put effort behind it, you'll, you'll have a skill, a marketable skill. However, the marketable skill needs effort again, to give you human achievement. So effort counts twice, talent once. I talked about those 10,000 hours. 
I talked about those people making the jump. I worked for 12 and a half years at a Fortune 500 company, but I knew God was calling me to do this. So I wasn't just sitting around. I was doing Bible studies, youth ministry. I was reading everything you'd read in seminary. I would travel everywhere to hear anybody. Beth Moore, who does big conferences now, tells stories about driving all over Texas, selling books out of the back of her car, speaking to 40 women. So in other words, there are skills acquired, but it takes grit, and Proverbs talks a lot about grit, especially with the ant and other suggestions, to make us thrive in life. You see, the problem is we turn on the TV or we look at somebody else and say it all works out for them, and we don't see the grit that was necessary. And there are seasons of overtime and seasons of going back to school and seasons of grit, Proverbs 10, 4 says, poor is he who works with a slack hand. Never gets the effort to bring out his skill, but the hand of the diligent, or those who have grit, are rich. Proverbs 13, 4 says, the soul of a lazy man desires. He wants all these jobs. He wants all the, the pool in the backyard and all, but never is willing to put in the time. So the theology of work is that God has something for us. Uh, the qualities of work are whatever we're called to do in any season, we should do it with all our heart into the Lord, but can we ever really love Mondays? Can we ever hit a sweet spot? Message to young people, not at 23, okay? Unless you're LeBron James, you're not gonna hit your sweet spot at 23, okay? There's probably a path for you and most people believe you're going to spend your entire 20s working, getting educated, and learning the skills that will carry you now for a multitude of jobs. No one's going to work one job to the end, probably. There are no dead-end jobs. When kids tell me they're in a dead-end job, I recoil. Every job I've ever had has prepared me for what I'm doing right now. My dad was a landscaper, and we have 24 acres. For the most of our history here, we couldn't afford to cut grass and do flowers here, so we all did it, and I loved to do it. It was a diversion. We have a cafe. My mom was in food service all her life. I learned what to do, what not to do. I love to read. I worked for a Fortune 500 company. I went to college. I took everything I've learned along the way and use it now, and God wants to do that in your life. You're gaining the skills that one day God's going to tap you on the shoulder Jesus was a carpenter. Can you imagine Jesus cutting corners? Or Moses? Or Joseph? Or Daniel? Now I think they did it all to the best of their ability. To get to your sweet spot, you have to be willing to fail. I could read you story after story, we don't have time, of people that failed. You're not going to get where you need to go unless you get some bumps and bruises on the way and fail. Two, you're going to have to acquire the skills necessary. Again, have to go back to school, um, try other things. And then for some of you who don't like where you are to get to your sweet spot, you'll have to jump. So I jumped from a Fortune 500 company into a church. Um, people were jumping all the time. Uh, everybody wants to know when's the right time to jump. No one can tell you. No one. It's a gut feel. Jesus said to the disciples, you guys aren't going to fish anymore. You're going to fish for men now. And they had to jump. 
And they did, and they changed the world. When I was teaching this the last time, I really wanted to get it right. So I went to all the small business owners and CEOs or people that, uh, not manage people, people that pay people, like they actually pay them. And I said, uh, I want the people of Calvary to be hireable, okay? I want the people of Calvary to be hireable. What are some of the attributes? You know what the number one attribute was? Attitude. So if you look at the four C's, right? This is how we hire people. First of all, character, no brainer. You, got, you have to have character, stellar character. Uh, second of all, you need competence, you have to have skill. You have to have chemistry with the other workers and you have to fit our culture, right? But number one, one gentleman said, I'm not paying anyone to sour my company, our mission, and my employees. The second thing they said they were looking for is people that were willing, teachable, and humble, and would do anything that were asked. Now look, everybody wants to get everybody where they give the most value, but there are times where you just gotta jump in. Uh, when I got hired at Boeing, they were in a, a growth season. No one had time to train me. So we had data operators that would just punch in data. Uh, they were hired from a, a, an outside source. And so uh, I didn't have anything to do, so I learned how to do data input, which nobody with a college degree would do at that time. But when I was putting it in, I started to learn the program. And th this is you know, way before a computer on your desk. This was like a mainframe thing. Guess what happened? There was like one guru in Seattle, and then I was the guru in Philadelphia who learned this antiquated system and can answer all the questions. So in a layoff company, I made myself valuable because I was willing to jump in. Attitude rises to the list of almost everyone I asked, and Christians should have the best attitude. Not an attitude of entitlement or we don't make enough, but a willingness and a thankfulness and a gratitude to jump in and do whatever's required. Being on time and all the other things self-managed that I mentioned will help you thrive, and if you see God putting you on a trajectory, I think one day you can love Mondays. And let me tell you something about loving Mondays. Again, it's not all about you. It's about you adding value, and it's about the eyeballs on you. Eyeballs on you that are learning more from how you work than anything you say about Jesus Christ. You can talk to them about the end of the world, and listen, they need to hear the gospel. Don't, don't get me wrong. But if you're 15 minutes late every day and you're telling them about the end of the world, they ain't hearing you, right? If you're cutting out and doing shoddy work, not gonna work. God's put us in all these places. 12 and a half years, I'm in a place where I knew wasn't my calling, not my gifting. It was the farthest thing from what I was called to do, but I knew I was called to do this. And believe me, I had days of complaining. And in one of my complaining days, God told me, I've put you around people one day you'll pastor so you can hear their stories and how they're raising their kids and what they're going through. See, that's what happens when God's your manager. I know people say, yeah, uh, you know, I'm just goofing off now because God's gonna put me in the ministry. He's not gonna put you in a good ministry. Which, by the way, ministry's hard work. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, be a workman unto God, rightly dividing the truth. You hear a great sermon, there's been 16 to 20 hours behind it. No one runs a cafe without many hard-working hours in it. The difference between average preaching and good preaching is simply hard work. The difference between good preaching and great preaching is God's anointing. 
So if ministry's in your future, you're probably already killing it somewhere else. That's who God's looking for. The disciples were probably great fishermen. Now, we've talked all morning about work because it's necessary. But here's the point. It's only one of your fields. So I want to ask you, how is that field? Is it thriving? Is it growing? Is there some weeds? The beautiful thing is by God's grace, we say, God, you know, I've been a little bit negligent. And God, I need a little bit of grace. And God, I want to pray that you would lead me and guide me. Maybe I need to make a jump. God's grace is sufficient. There shouldn't be any condemnation. But there are other fields. If God has given you a spouse, you have a marriage field. If Solomon looked at that field, what would it look like? What about your parenting field? So I told you I'm 55 and I'm in a season where I'm enjoying my marriage in the later years and I'm enjoying the later years of my parenting. Why? Because little by little by little, 30 years ago, we made it a priority. We went to marriage retreats. We went to parenting conferences. We went to Bible studies. We put our kids in this and we put our kids in that. And it was just as hard as you had it, maybe harder. But it was a priority. And so that field's doing pretty good. How's your relational field? Proverbs has a lot to say about relational intelligence and friendship, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That feels a little overgrown for me. I've got a couple broken walls that I gotta fix. What's your spiritual field look like? Are you growing in your love for God? Are you growing in grace? Even if you're in a dry season, is, are, are you seeking God? I mentioned retired people. Uh, you guys, I think it's one of the great times of life. Chuck Smith said he was more fruitful post 60 than all the years before. You've sown all the seeds, now you get to watch them grow. How's your church field? Are there people you're fellowshiping with? Are you diving in the service? How are your fields? What are you doing with the gifts God has given in you? Gordon McDonald said, in the great race of life, there are some Christ followers who stand out from the rest. I call them the resilient ones. This is from Hebrews. The further they run, the stronger they get. They seem to possess these spiritual qualities. They're committed to finishing strong. They run inspired by a big picture view of life. They run free of the weight of the past. They run confidently trained to go the distance. And they run in the company of a happy few. One of the men that I think is resilient is John Maxwell. Now, John Maxwell gets kind of ribbed because if you go in the Barnes and Noble, he has all these leadership books and people think he's sold out. He was once a pastor. He had the largest denomination in his denomination. And he literally quit pastoring to write books and teach leadership around the world. He made the jump because God led him. Most lay people will say, no, God never leads anybody that way. But he led John that way. And John tells a story about how he was in Japan, of all places, which has about a 2% Christianity. And uh, he was teaching leadership principles. And a guy raised his hand and said, where'd you get all this information? Where do you get all this stuff? He said, you know, I can't tell you in the seminar. 
But after dinner, this room is available, and I'll do a little Q&A for anybody that comes back. So John shows up in the room. He set up eight chairs, and 400 Japanese came back. And off the record, told him he got it all in the Bible, told him about Jesus Christ, tears coming down their eyes. And he said, God, I've been ribbed by everyone, but I'm so thankful I followed you and your voice and not another. And I didn't lean on my understanding. I leaned on how you had led me. Look, we're not defined by what we do. I'm not a pastor. I'm an individual. That's my value. My value before God is not what I do. Neither Whatever you do, it's not our value. But we do have a function. We do have a function. God has called us to many things. And the question you'll answer this week and the rest of your life and if you come to Calvary, you're going to hear me say it. What's the condition of your field? We already know God has given us the resources, everything we need. 